Hello and welcome to our podcast, Spilling Tea with the G's. I'm your host, Nick Gowarakis, and I am joined by my brother, Steve Gowarakis. We are delighted to be teaming up for what we expect to be a fun and insightful podcast season filled with the people in the adolescent and young adult cancer community, or better known by the acronym AYA. The purpose of this season is to look at services and resources that might be forgotten by the AYA cancer community so people can learn more about what is out there that can help them live their life how they want to. Before I introduce this season's interviewee, uh, excuse me, the session's interviewee, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we would not make this podcast possible without the amazing supporters from the following organizations, Bristol Myers Squibb, Genentech, Servier, and Walgreens. These organizations support our mission at the Stephen G. Cancer Foundation and Elephants in Tea to make sure no AYA faces cancer alone, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, or location. If you know someone at these organizations, please thank them for all that they do for our community. Now, today's guest is Lauren Lux. Lauren is the AYA Program Director at UNC Chapel Hill. She runs the program there as a licensed social worker and just has an awesome attitude towards supporting the cancer community and has been involved for a very long time. So we are delighted to have her join us and we really dive into why it's important to try to be a part of an AYA program. Uh, That's just part of it. We talk about a little bit more from the social work side of things too, but definitely for folks to understand how important it is to try to find a hospital or a program that is definitely dedicated to the AYA age range, which is 15 to 39. It really can make a difference and really help in feeling less alone by finding a hospital, even if there's not one in your backyard. So we really talk about that a lot with Lauren and talk about the importance of just supporting this community. So again, sit back, relax, plug those headphones in and enjoy our interview with Lauren. So again, Lauren, thanks for joining us on Spilling Tea with the G's. First of all, how are you today? How are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you guys. Yeah, we're pumped to have you. So let's let's just get right into the question, shall we? So the, okay. the first question we have for you is just tell a little bit about yourself. I've gotten to know you pretty well over this past year. Obviously, you and Steve just met right before this, which is really cool. And go the way audience, back. go way back. Go way oh, back yeah. to oh, yeah. backpacking conversation days, right? But yeah, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and why you do what you do. Yeah, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've been in the field for about 10 years or so, 10 plus years, something like that. Uh, And I went to, I got my master's degree in social work from the University of Chicago. And I sort of always knew I wanted to work in the field of oncology Growing up, my mom uh, actually was diagnosed with Hodgkin's as a 21-year-old. And so I had a lot of exposure to cancer centers and the medical system through her. She had multiple relapses and ended up dying from a late effect cancer that she had from a result of all the treatment that she had received. So I had just, I'd grown up in that space and... I loved it. I just, I love the people. They were my people. I was like, these people are amazing. They took great care of my family. And I knew that I wanted to be in that space. At the same time, I was really interested in social justice and mental health. 
And those are sort of the cornerstones of social work. I really loved that in the field of social work, you could work with individuals, but also that sort of systems level and macro work was a huge part of that as well. And how do we make larger level change that impacts individuals? And I truly connected with the ability of social work within a medical system or within healthcare system to help people navigate that system, but also to change the system. And so it was just a really lucky thing. I feel really lucky that when I was, you know, 20, I sort of figured out what I wanted to do and I was right, or I have been right so far, you know, like 20 years later. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I really, it's, I started working in pediatric oncology and fell in love with teenagers. Hmm. And anytime I would say that people would be like, what? <laughs> and I, I just love, I love teenagers and young adults and I, I love their authenticity. I love their honesty. I love their sense of humor. I love that you really can't bullshit them. Like you really just have to show up as your, your whole self and uh, engage in a way that's really different than I think little kids or older adults. And so that was sort of pre AYA oncology as a field. Right. And so I knew that those were my people, both providers and patients and, and was lucky. I've just been lucky to sort of be able to be involved in that work since then. So that's worked me. Um, I live in North Carolina. I'm married to my best bud. We have two little girls. I guess they're not so little. I have a seven and a three-year-old. <laughs> New basketball fan, but I work for UNC. So that's like a big deal in North Carolina. Sure. That's like a no-no. That's, sure. That's so, so wait, wait, did you say you're an NC State fan? Oh God, no, no, you. No, wow, Duke fan. Yeah, mm. it's a real thing around here. Oh, you know, oh, you oh. we could have a whole podcast just on that. Multiple podcasts. Yeah, you got to choose a side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I played college basketball. So when we moved here to North Carolina, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, I uh, I'd always been a huge Duke fan. I grew up in the Midwest, and Duke was just on TV all the time. So I was like one of those fans, <laughs> and a total crazy typical, fan. typical so, bandwagon fan. Typical right? yeah, bandwagon yeah, absolutely. Fan. And so my husband went to Duke to get his master's degree, and we we went to a game at Cameron Indoor. And I cried when I walked in and I was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I was like, he was like, really? Like, what about me? And I was like, wait, yeah, like this and you, like, I mean, you facilitated this. Like, that's cool. <laughs> well, that's an awkward car ride home. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's interesting. Well, very cool. Where did you play college ball? Just out of curiosity. Just a little liberal, liberal art school in St. Louis called Webster University. Webster, sure. Very cool. Very um, good. Very good. Wow, there's so much there to unpack, Lauren. Um, so, so, so is, yeah. is that the reason why you actually you, you get along with uh, teenagers? Is that you, uh, you 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 tell them you like college basketball or or the right team? Do you pick and choose when you walk into a, a patient's room? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, you know, I think one of the things I like about working with teenagers and young adults. I mean, there's so many things that I like, but that I you get to be a little bit of a chameleon and kind of connect with folks based on what's important to them and. I really like that. I, I like to be able to kind of meet folks where they're at and figure out what's important to them and connect around that. So sometimes it's basketball and so, you know, sometimes it's other stuff. I love the analogy of chameleon. It, it's so true, especially yeah. in social work. I mean, my goodness gracious, the amount of different people, different backgrounds that you have yeah. to work with and have to adapt with is crucial. Uh, yeah. that, that's a great way to put it. 
Well, and, and you took the words right out of my, my mouth by saying you're meeting them where they're at. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that's what matters. You know, yes. it's, it's you know, no offense. You know, when a doctor walks into a room or a nurse or a social worker, as much as it sucks at the end of the day, as a patient, I don't really care what's going on in your day. I don't really right. care what's going on. I want, you know, you're there for me in that moment. And the fact yeah. that you're willing to, again, meet them where they're at, I'm sure allows you to connect with your patients much easier than people who choose not to. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot. I think because those are real tenants of the AYA space, right? I think a lot of the people who work in this space share those values and share that commitment to really getting to know the person in front of you, not as a patient, but as a whole person. That shouldn't just be for AYAs, right? I think about that so much that a lot of the work that we're doing in this space really is applicable to any age. I think it's just that we're a part of a, a healthcare system that's kind of busted and we're we are able to, in the AOA space, sort of stand in that gap where services don't exist and try and meet needs in that way. But doesn't everybody kind of deserve that? It's not just us. It's not just the AOAs, right? I mean, they have unique needs, of course, but everybody deserves that. Well, and you know what? And again, this is the opinion of someone who has spent 15 years in and out of a hospital with four different right. cancers and pediatric adult, young adult. Right. You've seen um, it all. You've got the whole landscape. <laughs> And what I have found is, and again, personal opinion here, but, you know, adult medicine has existed forever. I mean, for hundreds of years, the way it is, this, this you know, yeah. and, and, those, and those silos that, that, you know, bet- that between departments and people have been built up over those years. And pediatric came around in the last hundred years, I believe, it, you know, it's, it's not much older than that. So you see the difference in pediatric because we finally had some knowledge and now we're developing this new thing again now, this young adult, adolescent and young adult space. So it's almost like we get to build it from the ground up, looking back at the years and years of even not, you know, actual statistical information, but just the anecdotal stories of what works better and what people need. And I think it's such a wonderful space that people who thrive in get to be in because you do get to look at what has worked, what doesn't work and what can we do for these patients? And I think that's what, you know, makes young adult hospitals and young adolescent and young adult hospital is so special because they that they have that ability. For sure. So being someone that is now the program director at a AYA program, specifically at UNC Chapel Hill, in, yeah. how, first of all, how long have you been doing that for? About six years. In six years. So you've seen yeah. a lot, I feel like, in the past six years. Yeah. It's such a cool time to be in this space. I feel so lucky all the time. I tell patients like, don't tell anyone I have the best job in this hospital. I don't want anybody to come, come for it. Like just it's between me and you, like I have the best job. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, so for being the program director of an AYA program, you obviously yeah. see a lot from a patient standpoint, from a resources standpoint, yeah. you know, what would you say are the biggest needs that you see personally from an AYA standpoint, either with your patients? And I know that you're very involved nationally as well at different conferences and things like that. So however you want to incorporate that into this answer too, but just in general, yeah. the biggest needs from the AYAs. Yeah, that's a, I mean, I think that's such a great question. First of all, I think that the sort of the way that our program breaks down is around clinical care research and sort of training, education, and outreach, right? And so I see needs in those buckets. That's sort of how I, the lens that I view our work through. And I think a lot of our patient needs for sort of where where we need to do better is it's just around assessing for need. 
I think that there are so many of our young people who fly just under the radar of sort of being in crisis, which is usually what you need to be in to get a referral to any kind of support services in a cancer hospital, right? Because there's tons of new people diagnosed every day. There are never enough support services, right? And so I actually think one of the biggest things that we're focused on is just asking the questions. Like, we just need to name the thing. Like, I'm going to give you a menu. Tell me, tell me what on this menu is causing you a problem right now. And, how, and then we'll figure out how we can help you. So I think that's one of the biggest things that I've seen in sort of the evolution of our program and how we've grown and also just across the board, it's not rocket science, right? Like I think there are some specific domains that adolescents and adults deal with that are unique from younger kids or older adults. And you've got to ask, you've got to ask about those things, mostly because people don't know what they don't know. You know, I think that as a provider, we have this knowledge because we've watched people and walked beside them through this process a zillion times. That's where our knowledge is. The patient's knowledge is about like who they are and what's important to them. And what they need in their life and what they want to prioritize. And I think it's important that we figure out how to put those two things together, right? And that we trust that patients are going to be able to get what they need if we present them with the option to even understand what that is and how to get it, right? So I think that's one of the things that I see. I think from a larger like level systems level perspective, our program has had, I think, and the way that my head has shifted around this in the last year or two, is that the work that we do is incredibly important, but I think more important than the individual work we do, or just as important, is the culture change that we're trying to create within our institution. That we we can't be everywhere. I'm never just like, you know, there aren't enough support services for people. We're never going to have 100 people on our AYA team. And I think this speaks to how we can work in centers that don't have AYA programs as a hub as well, it's that culture change, right? And that happens over time and with institutional buy-in. I mean, I could talk about that forever and ever and ever, but I think that's been a big focus for us too, is that everything we do has our eyes on that sort of culture change, big picture, but always with the patient experience and voice at the center of that. You know, uh, you brought up a really interesting point there by talking about hospitals that don't have young adult centers yeah. or don't, you know, don't have uh, programs that are adolescent and young adult focused. And you hit it right on the nail that had in terms of coming to the people, getting those questions, getting those answers, you know, upfront, because there are, there are so many patients that live in that, you know, just below crisis level. Yeah. So as someone who understands what an adolescent and young adult hospital can offer and what I don't want to use the term regular hospitals, but non-adolescent yeah, young adult hospitals. They don't have that specific specialization. Yeah. So I guess, you know, is there anything, any little bit of advice for people who are at those hospitals who are listening in that, you know, go, great, I would love to be at a young adult hospital where they have these extra programs, yeah. but I'm not. And I'm four hours away from the closest place. Yes. You know, what, yes. you know. I guess, what advice do you have for that person? You know, are there any resources that you know of that they can, you know, find or, and obviously with telemedicine becoming what it is, getting in contact with adolescent young adult hospitals is becoming easier. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. That's such a good question. And I feel so torn sometimes when I think about that, right? Because exactly the situation that you just described that oftentimes it's better uh, for people to get treated closer to home, right? I'm not trying to scoop everybody up and bring them to Chapel Hill because if you have to drive four hours every day to come for radiation, 
when you could get radiation 30 minutes from you, maybe that's a better situation for you. It's sort of, it sometimes feels like you're choosing the lesser of two evils, right? That it's nothing is a perfect picture. I think asking to talk to a social worker at whatever I'm biased, right? I'm going to tell you, you should talk to a social worker. Maybe if you got somebody else who'd be like, let's talk to a nurse navigator. Well, I no, think anybody- no, no, Lauren, because that's my personal experience is that at the end of the day, when you have a question at the hospital, no offense to the doctors, nurses, everybody else out there, but yeah, if you want to know how things are going to get done, talk yeah. to the social worker. There's the one that have the resources. So no, you're, if anyone yeah. else on here said something different, I would probably be like, well, I think you should at least start there. Right. I think that's yeah. right. I think ask to talk to a social worker or your nurse navigator. A lot of people have kind of like resource centers that I think the issue, I think that what I struggle around that is that it takes a lot of self-efficacy to advocate in that way and to know that you should reach out. And so I appreciate you guys asking that question and we can sort of prompt people to, to reach out. I, you know, I think it's, it's hard though, right? Because you're, when you're first diagnosed, right, you guys know better than most people you're drinking water out of a fire hose. I mean, it's just, you have no idea right? You're just being bombarded. And so I think a big piece of what you are offered at an AYA program is that proactive conversation. You know, so for our program, we, the only ticket in the door to see us is your age, right? We provide universal consultation to anybody in that age range. And I think we catch a lot of things before they become big problems because, we can assess early and often, right? We can check in. I think that's the other piece is that your needs change over time. You know, Stephen, I imagine like when you think about your first diagnosis versus your most recent diagnosis, your needs are totally different, but also within each of those treatment courses, your needs change from beginning to middle to end to what, you know, and I think that's just what we've found so much of is that if we're not asking the questions, we don't find out about things. It's really hard. Well, you know, and it's, uh, and so this most recent time I was di- when I was diagnosed, I was truly an adult being diagnosed because yeah. the first two cancers, I was 15 and then I was 18 yeah. and definitely was in the pediatric side. You know, I was, we, you know, at university hospitals, rainbow babies and children's hospital, the pediatric department there, we have a young adult, an adolescent young adult program there. Yeah. And it does extend to the adult side as well, but it usually sits more on the pediatric side. Okay. And so when I got diagnosed on the adult side, you know, two cancers, I got diagnosed with two cancers at the same time, right. my third and my fourth cancer, and they had no idea what to do. And I came from yeah. this pediatric world where you had one doctor who ran everything yeah. for you. Yeah. And also I think that as young adults, most of our experiences with a doctor are with our parents. Absolutely. As a child. Absolutely. So you're used to that. Um, kind of pediatric care where they're Absolutely. bringing all that information to you, where you go to the adult side and they don't want to talk to you, they want to communicate. And so I quite literally had to bring in a social worker right from the get-go. And I'm someone who I let you know myself is knowledgeable yeah. of how things work at a hospital, how yeah. things should be taken care of. Yeah. And so when you said the first thing someone should do is reach out to a social worker or at least the resource center, you're 100% right. Because if someone like me, and don't get wrong, all hospitals are different. All staffs yeah. are different. But if someone like me struggles to get information from my doctors, someone who's just being diagnosed for the first time right. sure as hell is going to have trouble, Absolutely. especially if your parents aren't there as a young adult. And so I think you hit it, you know, hit the nail on, on the head right there. With, with and everything. also, and just to add to that, Steve, also the fact that you were at an AYA hospital, right? Yeah. And I think that there's that to be said as well, that you're at an AYA hospital, 
and there was still that lack of communication. Yeah. yeah. And so if you're at a hospital that doesn't have an AYA program, it could be a whole different ballgame as well. But again, just reiterating the point, I think we're like that we're all saying is social worker, nurse navigator are folks that really should be first on the list to touch base with. Yeah. And you know, I think too, that's one of the things that from a systems perspective, our and Nick, you and I have talked about this a lot. Our program and my sort of bias is that AYA programs need to lean more heavily on the YA side, right? On on the adult medicine side. Not because teenagers don't have different needs, but because there is a very different culture and community in pediatrics than there is in the young adult space on the adult side. And that's not demonizing adult providers. I love the people I work with on the adult side. I think the system that they work in, the expectations of them are bonkers. The, they don't have the support that they need, right? Like there's, and so again, I, I see our job largely on the adult side as standing in that gap and, and bridging it and bridging the gap between what the system can provide and what a patient and their family and community needs. And I think that bridge is, uh, is our primary function. And we, so we have a, a, a big team, like compared to a lot of places, we're really fortunate. We are funded by a local nonprofit called the Be Loud Sophie Foundation, and they've allowed us to grow. We have great institutional buy-in and support. I mean, we, we are really lucky, really lucky. And so there, there's myself, we have a full-time social worker, we have a full-time nurse practitioner, we have a full-time research assistant, we have a medical director, and we have a fertility preservation social worker. So we've got a whole crew of people and they absolutely, on the, from that clinical care perspective, send, spend the majority of their time on the adult side. First of all, there's just more patients, right? We diagnose 400-ish new people a year. You know, 30 of those are teenagers, the rest of those folks are young adults. And so just by law of numbers, right? Like we're going to spend more time there. But I believe that there's a, a real need on the adult side that is a very different ballgame than on the PEAT side. We almost, in that same way that we have to be chameleons of patients, we almost have that programmatically too, where we're sort of like morphing to what PEDS people need. And then we're also morphing to what adult people need and what that system needs as well. Yeah. And I think just to kind of sum up that this part of the conversation, just the culture, like we talked, like you mentioned, it's a big thing that is changing. And I think for the better overall, but ultimately too, this is one of the things just with AYA in general and you, the age range that that has is gigantic. And, and for those that don't know, the adolescent young adult age rate is, is 15 to 39 according to the National Cancer Institute and some organizations may go higher or even lower than that, depending on who you ask. So you add in a pediatric side that goes, you know, as low as it can go on an age standpoint, right? You have a almost a 40 age range difference of people that you have to try to coordinate and understand and, and really recognize what resources are available. It's so drastically different for a five-year-old on the pediatric side versus a 39-year-old on the young adult side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Steve. Well, and you know the one thing that, and, and I told the the director of uh, Simon Cancer Center this recently. You know that when someone gets diagnosed on the adult side, especially on the adult side, that with that initial diagnosis, when a doctor comes in and says you have cancer, yeah. with them should either be a nurse navigator mm-hmm. or a social worker, right off the rip, because yeah. you know we want to make sure people follow through with their care, get the right quality of care, and stay in contact with their doctors, yeah. and you know, one of the first things that made me love my surgeon this last time around 
was the first thing he said to me was, I'm so happy you reached out to the social work team here. They make my job so awesome. I came from a different hospital and I've never had a social work team like this that actually engages as much as, as they do here. And you know, surgeons, I know surgeons. They don't say those things. That's not something normal they say. You know, it just shows that how much a patient can gain from yeah. having an interaction with a social worker. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, COVID has just sucks. That's <laughs> such an understatement. I mean, it's <laughs> a good way to put it. It's just, it was, it's been awful, right? For a bazillion different reasons. And I, I don't know, the first 8,200 months of COVID, people were like, silver lining, things we're learning. And I was like, uh, yeah, I just can't, I can't wrap my head around finding a silver lining around this. Begrudgingly, I will say, one of the things that has shifted for us at work is this idea that we can provide virtual care for people. And we still need to be on site. We've got to be on site. We've got to be with people in person. Being outside of the hospital for those first few months of COVID was awful. We were just not as effective. However, when we think about people who are being treated four hours away and we think about this sort of hub and spoke model that we're thinking about nationally and how we reach those folks and offer them those same opportunities and resources, COVID sort of busted that wide open for us and gave us the opportunity to think as a field about how are we going to reach those folks? We actually can do that now in a different way, which seems, you guys, isn't it crazy that like, like two years ago, why, why, that we didn't think about doing like Zoom visits with patients or whatever when they're four hours away? How It's crazy how tunnel vision you get, right? And yeah. now it's so normal. Like when I think about it and I'm like, we could do video visits. And it's like, yeah, it's 2021. Like yeah. we could have done that many years ago. Well, it, it's amazing on just the, uh, I don't know, tunnel, tunnel, tunnel vision is definitely one of the right words or words. I think it's also too, just the fear of doing something new or yeah. the fear of yeah. just what's actually going on with the video, right? It's just yeah. out of people's control. Yeah. But as you said, we had no choice. People had no choice. And now it's like, oh, wait, this is, it's, it's amazing. Just, I know this is like way off topic to a certain point, but the power of just humanity, when we actually want to do something as a collective, yeah. it gets done. Right. Yeah. So, but it, it's so true that for those that want to do telehealth still going forward, it will not be there for sure for them. Right. Well, and I think that speaks to some of the power of the connection between hospitals and medical institutions and nonprofits like, and, and folks like you guys, because you have, I think, this creativity and flexibility and nimbleness that we don't. And when we partner, first of all, we always learn things from partnering with folks outside of our hospital or just our sort of institution that is so ingrained in the ways that we've always done things. But you guys can push those boundaries in some ways that we can. So that's why I think this, these partnerships between advocacy organizations and nonprofits in the AYA space and AYA programs and hospitals, they're so powerful. Yep. Agreed. Well, and uh, to, to take it back to COVID for a second here, not, not specifically COVID-19, but something came up during COVID that has always impacted cancer patients, has always impacted everybody, yep. but it became front of stage was mental health. Yeah. We heard every single person in the country raving about the mental health needs of our of our children, of our workers, yada yada yada. And we obviously know that young adults with you know young adult cancer patients struggle with yeah. their mental health needs. And this is also where telehealth comes in massively now because there's been times for me now where I've needed to have a conversation with my doctor and we just zoom. Yeah. 
It's amazing. I don't have to set up an appointment and come in. So I guess, you know, I was going to ask, you know, what advice do you have for AYEs in general when it comes to mental health and seeking mental health? Because we know that's a, that in and of itself can be a journey. And I hate to say that to people who who need help. It can be, it's, it's, you're not going to find someone, you might find someone right away, but if you don't, you know, a psychologist or or therapist, that's not uncommon, but I will spin the question a little differently and say with everything that has gone on the pandemic, the extreme isolation, are there any new mental health needs that you're seeing within the young adult community first is the first question I'll ask. Yeah, that's a great question. You know what I think I'm seeing more than anything else? Certainly there's sort of classic diagnosable, diagnostic depression and anxiety and PTSD, right? That's always there. I think one of the things just maybe more existentially or developmentally that definitely plays into mental health that I've seen is the, is the stuckness of it all. So that folks will make it through treatment and they've kind of got their heads down. And and we see this a lot in our population that when you have an acute illness like cancer that you perceive to be acute, right. That you're going to, you get diagnosed, you do treatment and then you're done. Right. There's this aspect of like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to get through this, right? Like, I'm just going to put my head down and get through this. I I don't need no coping skills. I don't need to talk to anybody. I just want to get done and get back to my life. And then people get to the end of the treatment and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That was really hard. I'm going to start processing what's happened to me because I finally have a minute to breathe and feel safe to do that. And, And it's like, what the hell? How do I make sense of this? How do I fold it into who I am as a person? I actually can't go back to the life that I had before because I am a different person than I was at the beginning of this. So that that piece at the end of treatment, I think is really hard for people at the best of times, right? And I see more people cry and have, and struggle in our survivorship clinic, more sometimes more than even when they're in treatment, right? And what I'm seeing COVID compounding with that is that they can't move forward. It's like the world has been paused. They were paused and now they can't even figure out how to move forward at all because the whole world is shut down. So I think there's a lot of like, what am I doing? How do I move forward? How am I spending my time? How do I reconnect with people when I can't leave my house and I'm scared because my immune system isn't awesome or my, right? Like, so I think that that's one of the things I've seen from our patients is that, they just feel so stuck after a period of time of already feeling really stuck. And how do you cope with that? And what does that look like? And then does that cause depression and anxiety? I think people are using substances more often to help cope with that. I see a lot more marijuana use and alcohol use. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many things. It just turns the volume up on everything. I think it's just made everything harder. Well, you know, it's, and you, you you said something that I have been saying now for quite some time, and this is, I thought it was, you know, personally, but also just seeing it from other people around is mental health, the aspect of the cancer journeys, whatever you want to call it Everyone for call yourself, it. Yeah. you know, I call it a journey. I call myself a warrior or a survivor. Deal with it. Yeah. Um, People and, have strong opinions about that. Oh my gosh. I know. And, 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 you know, and I'm one of those that just doesn't understand. We, we won't go down that path right now because yeah. we could talk about that again for an hour. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm a warrior. I'm a survivor. I don't really care. Oh, whatever works you know. for you. Right. Like, yes. You know, but for me, you know, it was, it was, and is the most difficult part of my cancer journey has been the in-between time between my cancers. 
Ooh, yes. You know, I spent 11 years between my two diagnoses, well, mm-hmm. between my second and then my subsequent third and fourth diagnosis. Right. And it sucked. It absolutely sucked. It sucked more than any of the cancers. It sucked more than any of the treatments. I didn't know how I fit in the world. I abused drugs because I just didn't know how to feel, how to cope. How do I explain what's going on in my head and how I just can't focus and I can't do these things, you know, and to your point, you know, I mean, we know that alcohol use and substance abuse has gone up during COVID. I know for myself, I smoked more, more, more marijuana during the initial uh, beginnings of the pandemic because well, I did, I did just have cancer and surgery, but I was also small, dealing small with details, small, small details. details, but you know, the stress of the world was already on me. And then the pandemic hits. Yeah. And as you put it, you're going, I'm coming out of this cancer now. <laughs> what the fuck do I do? Amen. Yeah. How do I handle yeah. myself? What do I do with my life? Yeah. You know, but you know what I know what make me feel better? This joint, this joint will definitely make me feel better for right no now. Doubt. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, I think that that there's, and everybody was experiencing that in some ways, right? Whether it's food or booze or drugs I mean, I, or whatever. I, I, I would love to see someone honestly show me evidence that depression is not associated with substance abuse. Yeah. yeah. So I'd be hard pressed to believe that it's there. Yeah. You know, I know that when I have less depression, I abuse drugs less yeah. or not at all, yeah. you know? And yeah. so, you know, I, I'm really happy you brought that up because it is such a topic that in general, that we don't talk about in no. the cancer community, which is mental health in general, in yeah. this world, we don't talk about the stigma behind that. And yeah. then also drug abuse and drug addiction. Yeah. You know, I mean, how are you expected to, you know, I, I, I would never want to be the, the family member, the caregiver. I've experienced enough things in the last uh, two years between my brother and his wife and their child. Everyone's okay, thankfully. And my parents who got COVID and thankfully they're okay, you know, yeah. but being the patient when you come out of it and you're like, okay, how do I get back into this world now? Yeah. And the world don't want you and the world doesn't want you to fit in. And you don't fit. There's not like a specific place for you. Right. Because like with peers that have not had cancer or have not gone through some shit, it's hard to connect around some things, but also you just want to be normal. But one of the analogies that I use a lot um, is that you're, it's like you're driving on the highway and you have to pull over and everybody else keeps going 65 or if you're me, 85 miles an hour past you. And so first of all, everybody's moving forward and you're not, but second of all, it, you know, if you've ever pulled over on the side of the highway and you, it's like a little intimidating to get back on, right? Like you got to like gun it but you don't want to. And it's kind of scary. And like, how do you get back on? Like, it's really hard to figure that out. Well, and actually I have a question for Nick here to a certain extent. We had a writer for us talk about being stuck in a time bubble. Hmm. And, and I'm not sure who the writer was, Nick, if you recall off the top of your head. Yeah. That was uh, Joanna Barker. She was on the cover of gosh, March, 2019. We did a whole magazine on being stuck in the time bubble. And we obviously focused on being in purgatory with our purgatory events. But I I love, Lauren, how you actually put that of not, I haven't thought about it from that standpoint of being stuck on the side of the highway. Because yes, while you're in this time bubble, you're kind of stuck and to get out of the time bubble, does it pop? Like, how does it work? How how, how do you get back into it? Or how do you get out of purgatory? Yeah. The the description of trying to now go from zero to, in your case, 85 or even 90 to to go faster than everybody else just to catch up to them, right? So you're going from, almost negative to going 
way faster just to almost like hyperdrive mode yeah. just to get back to a normal speed. Yeah. So and I think that I think is something that the average person or a peer that has yeah. not gone through any sort of trauma has not, has not seen a loved one go through any trauma. They cannot understand how difficult that is yeah. not just for the patient and survivor, but even some family members as well. Also, you, I would go ahead. Oh, I was going to say. Also, imagine it's it's not that you're trying to get back on the highway at 85 miles an hour. It's that your car now is missing a wheel, has has a broken yes. piston, Ooh, and your axle is jacked yes. up. Okay, I'm taking it's, that. I'm adding yeah, that to my analogy because everyone really says that. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, but that's the assumption that I'm. And again, right. I'm someone who's able-bodied and can function. Yeah, you know, people don't function yes. well mentally, physically, yeah. emotionally afterwards, and now you have to get back you into the real world. You went from a sports car to a minivan trying to compete yes. against sports cars. Yes. So, yes. And, and your minivan's 30 years old and has literally yeah, I was been poisoned. Say it's got like wood paneling on it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Getting a minivan up to 125 miles an hour is pretty fun, by the way. But uh, anyways, uh, no. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a, well put. Well put. Do you guys do you guys find that more people engage in your community post-treatment than during treatment? Post. Do you have an idea? Well, well so let me post first treatment. Yeah. If that makes sense. So that's pretty, pretty well known. I think for most nonprofit support groups in yeah. general, when it comes to the YA, that it is folks that are post-treatment. Yeah. One of the things that it just as an organization as a whole, that we want to try to help people sooner. Right. And I'm, yeah. I will say this too, we're still relatively new yeah. compared to some other orgs. Yeah. So there's, there's obviously some, you and know, there's, there's always there's the outliers that come right. early. Right. But we hear from a lot of folks that, hey, I wish I had this when, right? All right. And I I think we only got one more question for you, Lauren, here. And and is that is, do you do anything unique at UNC that others should know about? So this is a really good question. I feel really lucky to be plugged in and connected with folks around the country who are doing this work in hospitals. And there's so much cool stuff going on and that we all can learn from each other around. I I guess I hesitate to say that, you know, this is unique to us, but one of the things that I'm really proud of that I think is really important in the work that we do is the multidisciplinary nature of it and how comprehensive it is as far as clinical care and research and teaching and that all of those things are connected. So, you know, myself and our medical director run our program together and sort of share a brain. And I think we both feel like that's been so valuable to the work that we do because we bring these really different perspectives. And then I have these amazing teammates who are doing the day-to-day clinical work and that informs the strategy and growth that we do as a program and any programming that we do. We have an amazing advisory board that really we take all questions to about whether it's research or quality improvement stuff, we're building an infusion space. So we're going to have, I think, what is maybe one of the only solely outpatient young adult focused infusion spaces around. And so it'll be for 18 to 39 year olds treated on the adult side. We'll have seven outpatient infusion chairs. And we're really excited about that. That's hopefully going to start construction in a little while. But we also have these really close collaborations with researchers across our campus and One of the things I love about that that I would encourage others to think about is the multidisciplinary nature of that as well. So we work closely with someone in our school of journalism and to think about, I mean, this is, this is totally y'all's world, right? But communication around healthcare and 
what we do clinically, we could do really great clinical things. And if we're not communicating well about them, or they're like really ugly to look at, if we're talking about surveys or we're talking about you know stuff that we're handing out to people, that affects people's ability to engage with it. And yes. so yes. I love, I love um, incorporating the way other people think into the work that we do. That's maybe not a typical discipline that you would think should be involved in cancer care. But one of the really cool things about being on an academic campus is that you can tap into all of these people who have resources and have expertise around pieces of the puzzle that I don't have any idea about, like, you know, like, I don't know anything about it. like that piece and you, or whether it's health promotion or public health, or I just think there's some really cool ways that we can invite others into this conversation that we are, are really focused on. How can we bring as many people along for this ride with us as possible? And some of that is self-preservation. We can't do it all. And some of it is also just owning and knowing that we don't have the skills to do it all. And we have all these really smart, committed people. UNC especially is just a really collaborative place and committed to, I think, social justice and change, despite what maybe some of the things the news is telling us about the Board of Governors and faculty appointments. A lot of the actual people who work at UNC are so cool. And so I think... That's one of the unique things about what we do is just that we're trying to bring as many people to the table as possible to learn from people as well, while incorporating patients' experiences and that voice. I think that's that's just really central to what we do. Awesome. Very cool. Awesome, Lauren. Lauren, thank you for being on here today. Thank you for all the wonderful work that you do. For our listeners out there. If you do happen to be at a adolescent young adult uh, or a hospital that has an adolescent young adult program and you're in need of help, please reach out to your nurse navigator or your social worker. If you don't happen to be at one of those uh, institutions, reach out to your social worker that the hospital does have, because I'm sure they have a social worker or at least a resource center. And if that fails, you can, there's plenty of organizations you can reach out. Uh, One organization that really has a good list and has uh, contact with young adult hospitals is Teen Cancer America. They'll know exactly where all the adolescent young adult institutes are around the country. And yeah, just don't be afraid to communicate. Don't be afraid to talk to your providers, ask questions, because if you don't ask, you'll never know. And they'll never know what your needs are if you don't tell them. Yeah. And I guarantee if you have a need, other people have that need too. I think that's the other thing that happens is that you sort of talk yourself into like, uh, am I the only person that's experiencing this specific thing? Never. You never are. (laughs) Like there's always other people. And, and to that point there, Lauren, I think what we're all trying to say here is you are not alone. Absolutely. You know, I, for so long thought I was alone. I, for so long felt that, you know, the things that I was going through were, were unique to me and no one else understood them. And then I finally met other AYAs like myself when I was 18, 19 years old and in my early 20s. And it changed how I felt. It changed my view of life and it changed my quality of life. Absolutely. So reach out. You're not yeah. alone and you're not the only one going through this. Yeah. So yeah. Don't go through it alone. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why what you guys do is so, so important because you're this beacon, right? Where people can find that home and connect with others. And that's huge. Awesome. Lauren, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been wonderful. Thank you guys. It was so much fun. I wish we could hang out more. I'm sure we will. At some point, (laughs) we will.
Our thanks to Lauren Lux for joining us today from UNC Chapel Hill. Again, honored to have her on here and call her a dear friend of ours. Our next episode features our other friend. We have lots of friends out here. Uh, Sydney Belise, uh, oncology specialty pharmacist at Walgreens, uh, which is going to be a good one. We talk about why the pharmacist is so important to a cancer patient, really any patient in general. Uh, they're not just there to fill a prescription bottle or any sort of prescription. They're actually a very, very valuable resource, especially to the oncology community. So you're going to want to join that one and hear from Sydney. We're excited to have her on there uh, joining us from Florida. Don't forget, gang, to like, share, subscribe to our podcast, as all of this helps us grow our reach so more people can feel less alone in facing cancer. Again, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we could not make this podcast possible without the amazing supporters from the following organizations, Bristol-Myers-Squibb, Genentech, Servier, and Walgreens. These organizations support our mission at the Stephen G. Cancer Foundation and Elephants in Tea to make sure no AYA faces cancer alone regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, or location. If you know someone at these organizations, please thank them for all that they do for our community. Have a great day, all. Toodles.